Welcome to the Queen Trail Podcast. There are three different types of radiation, alpha, beta, and gamma. What does this technology do? It's like, well, what can you do with electricity? I just survived 30 years HIV positive. I'm certainly not going to let a little thing like a brain tumor derail me. When I got to 29 pounds, I was so tired, I just collapsed. Everything always goes back to being grounded and centered. It's a mecca for cycling, for sure. Struggle is the neutralizing force. And I said, there it is. This is the right family. I'm, I got like cold chills. It's one lone oak tree right in the middle of the trail. It's beautiful. Hi everybody, welcome back. I hope you've had a great week since the last time that we got together. I'm going to go ahead and get right into this episode of In the Company of Friends with my good friend Walter McKinley Lewis. It is a remarkable story. Daring, rugged, inspiring, not only of survival, hard work and perseverance, but also of courage and thriving success. It's filled with adventure from the get-go, escaping the segregation of Bunky, Louisiana, a place that remains mostly segregated today, to become platoon leader in boot camp and continuing to follow his passion as corpsman in the Coast Guard, where he became a helicopter SARS medic, as well as a doc or doctor on the ice cutter glacier, which traveled to Antarctica three times and stopped at some of the world's most amazing ports. And there were sports. Football on the ice at zero degrees, softball in New Zealand, and a thrilling basketball game in Fiji that you just have to hear to believe. Walter ranked out in the Coast Guard and retired after 28 years, but his adventures and insatiable zest for life continue. Before we get into this episode, please be aware that it carries a warning for historical recounting of the tragedy in Vietnam in which Walter opens up about a friend's death. It is hard to listen to and may be triggering to some, but it is a historical document. So please be aware of the subject matter. If you're ready to listen, please grab a cuppa and join me on this inspiring adventure. But that movie was made exactly where I was born. It was filmed in Chaneville and Bunky in that area. Wow. I'm... Yeah. Definitely going to have to watch it. 12 Years a Slave. Yeah, yeah. You watch 12 Years The setting is Bunky then. Yeah, it is Bunky, Chainville in that area. And I was, when I watched that movie, I was so surprised. Well, I know somebody had told me about it, but I was watching the movie and I could see places that I like, yeah, that Bunky, you know. But uh, I, I wasn't surprised, you know, at the movie, but uh, I could only watch it once, you know. You know, to be honest... I didn't watch it because I don't like having my heart broken. Yeah, I know. Yeah, you don't like seeing that kind of stuff. I don't. But it's reality, and it's basically where I come from, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, like I say, I've seen the changes, and it's been good. we got a long ways to go, but I've seen the changes. So, hey. Although Bucky hasn't changed that much, but now it made me made me realize, wow, how did I come out of that environment and survive? Especially with the way I, I am now, but it, it was something. A lot of people often wonder, God, Walter, because I tell them things, you know, about it. They're like, uh, "Are you kidding?" I was like, "No, I'm not kidding." Yeah, but if you get a chance, you have to watch it, see, you know, how it is. And so I know you. You got you put out a lot of good stuff. I read your 
you know, things that you, uh, thoughts that you put out and they're really good. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. You know, I, I think that we really need to stop looking at color and start looking. Yeah. Yeah. I know. I'm with you. I'm totally with you. Yeah. Because like I say, I did my part because think about it. I come from a segregated atmosphere, fought whites all my life and uh, fall in love and marry a white woman in the 60s, late 60s, well, actually 70s. Think about it. So, yeah, I got tired of hating and having all this hate inside you, you know, so. What was it like growing up? Well, first of all, Tell me about your parents, because I know your dad was a really hard worker, how yeah, to work he, in the he, segregated he, South. Yeah. And my mom, uh, my mom's father owned a farm that was passed down to him. He was named as Bud Hill by his father, who was white. His father was white. They used to call him the old Irishman. So my grandfather was part white. And when my great-grandfather died, he passed the farm down to my grandfather. He was one of the only black people that owned a farm and he was from a little place called Cottonport because cotton was king then. Cotton was the main thing. Everybody grew cotton back there. But that was my grandfather. Now is that was that unusual for a black man to inherit from a white father? Yeah, that was unusual. Yeah. Yeah. And the only reason my grandfather did was because I guess his father was, uh, like I say, was Irishman and he was rough and he raised his son to be rough. My grandfather was like Ben Cartwright from the Ponderosa. That's the kind of guy he was. He didn't take no crap because we were small. He raised cotton and watermelon and we had to go out on the farm to help him. You know, I used to pick cotton when I was five, six years old. Oh my gosh. Yeah, yeah, I was in cotton fields, yeah, Uh, to to help uh, my grandfather on the farm. And he used to take me to the gin mill with him. And uh, at the gin mill, there was all white guy. And my grandfather was the only black. But they knew him. And they kind of like respected Bud Hills because he was like a rough, tough guy. Wow. Yeah. And my grandfather wanted to send my mother to Bethune-Cookman to a black college. He wanted her to be a teacher. Okay. And just so happened, she met my father. And I just don't understand the thing because my father was like, we're a poor family. And from what I understand, I was like, well, how did you guys ever get together? You know, I never <laughs> got there. Yeah, because he was afraid of my grandfather. Yeah. You know? And couldn't find out her sister helped him. But I was like, wow. Because when he married my mother, he was living on their property, living in the house. That's where he had all those kids at. And he was literally working for my grandfather, butchering, help with the planting, planting the cotton. Because, you know, my grandfather owned a lot of acres. Anything my grandfather needed to do, uh, my father helped. And once he had all those kids, because actually my mother had 12 kids, but one of them was died in miscarriage. Oh. So when he had 11 kids, um, we were all, because I was just a little kid. And I used to go on the phone. We were all out there on the phone, you know. But that's what he did. He helped. And, and then in return, my father, you know, gave him a salary. And also, we always had fresh milk and fresh meat and stuff. So it was a it was a good uh, thing. So it was a trade-off. You, you... The trade-off, yeah. Uh, fresh food on the table. And, and uh, we used to go out to the farm because Cottonport was about 10 miles from Bunking. And uh, it, it was cool. It was a good relationship. 
helping them. But uh, my father worked pretty hard for what he was getting. And, you know, so that was that was the uh, relationship. Um, but uh, I knew what happened. There was a lot of things that happened to black farmers. Their bonds, farms were getting burned down and they were getting run out because they didn't want them to own any land uh, down there. Yeah, but my grandfather held on to his, you know, so... Is that farm still in the family? Uh, no, part of it is. Uh, the house that I was born in, I was born in the house by a midwife. But the house that my grandfather, my father lived in, in the land, that's all what's left. That's still in the family, yeah. It's a big house there. Yeah, there's always a loose. But that's what we have left. That's our legacy, the house and that land. But all that other land, once my grandfather died, uh, it was taken away from my grandmother by a big corporation. They have buildings. We tried to find out what happened. I was like, how did they, you know, nobody knows. But it happened a lot. When my grandfather died, it was taken away from my grandmother, except for that land where she moved to in Bucky and she stayed there. But anyway, yeah, it happened a lot down south in those days, you know. But, but there's no record about where all that land went. And the question I have is, did you pay any money? Did you know? But uh, I don't remember my grandmother getting any money. That's such a shame. Well, yeah, that's just the way it was. So you basically grew up there. What was it like growing up there? It was a town of over about, say, 15,000 people uh, with about, I'll say, 60%, 70% black, 30% white. Uh, It was separated by railroad track. A railroad track separated the black neighborhood from the white neighborhood. And you found, if you go down south, that's usually how neighborhoods in those times were separated. Uh, I went to Carver High School, which was a segregated school, naturally, which I love Carver. It turned out so many people. I mean, because at that time, the teachers were preparing us. But the whole school boards was all white, and they couldn't teach anything like black history, you know, nothing like that. And the books we got were all raggedy books. The white school was across the track. And we would get their secondhand books, stuff. And um, basically, you know, they were suppressing us in a way. Uh, The plantations were passed down from slavery days. Say, for instance, you got a, uh, back in slavery days, you got these plantation owners who owned all this property. As a matter of fact, that's how Bunkett was made. And uh, when I was coming up, a lot of kids, fathers, for generation lived on those plantations and they couldn't go to school until after the crops were done. If school was started in June, they couldn't go to school until about July or August because the crops had to be done first for these plantation owners because you still got shareholders. Even today, you still got people living on those plantations wow. and their kids, they don't want their kids to be educated because for generation to generation, that's been going on. And I could never understand that. You know, like, yeah, and that's the way it was in our school. But our school was Carver High, named after George Washington Carver. We were the Eagles, and we, you know, no matter how much they tried to suppress us, we had a great school. We had basketball, which I played, and we had bands and stuff like that. I was a drum major also. Oh, were you? Yeah, yeah. And uh, we were Carver High School. All the black schools down that area was named after some black uh, inventor, a Bethune Cookman, I'm sure. I don't know if you heard of Bethune Cookman. Mm-hmm. Heard her. But uh, all the schools were named after that. But they were segregated. 
And, uh, you know, that's just the way it was. Also on the railroad track, all the movie, the movie theaters, they had a couple of movie theaters, the Fox and the Bailey, which was across the track. We could go to the theaters, but we had to go upstairs. You know, the white folks, that's where the Canon popcorn was downstairs. But we couldn't go there. We had to go upstairs, which I'm sure they were sorry because <laughs> guys were throwing stuff downstairs. It was that kind of thing. But, uh, but we had to. It was that. It was like that. Most of the stores was segregated. You had to be very careful, you know. So you know, everything was across the track for the white. They owned all the businesses. You shopped over there, but you had to shop. Be very careful when you go over. You know, you, you can't do certain things. <laughs> yeah. So. So the, you could shop over there. The, yeah. Were there shops over on your side of the tracks, or everything uh, was just over on Not clothing shops. Uh, not clothing shops. Well, yeah, a couple of grocery stores, but. That was all we had, or maybe a liquor store, uh, but all the uh, other stuff was on, across the track. They they owned everything: the movies, the furniture stores, the clothing stores, the pharmacists, all that stuff. They they owned that. And my mother worked. I don't know if you saw the movie The Help. Yes. Yeah, that's what my mother did. She worked for this uh, white lady. Her husband was a doctor. She worked as a nurse, and my mother worked for her. Miss Marion, they called her. She had two kids that my mother raised, basically. Wow. But she worked five days a week. Yeah, yeah. So that's what she did. And in the meantime, my old man worked in different jobs and stuff like that. And my sisters was mostly enjoyed uh, at home trying to raise us. But (laughs) that was crazy because I was always out in the streets, stuff like that. But that's how a family would basically run because my, my old man, he... He wasn't highly educated, you know. Well, with all the work he had to do, right? Yeah, with 11 kids. And being in a place where you are prevented from being educated, you know, the oppression. Yeah, but my mother was pretty strong. She she was a matriarch of her family. And back in those days, mostly black women ran the family. And uh, she kept me straight. But, you know, um, my old man was, like I said, he, he worked hard, you know. Very hard to keep food on the table and stuff like that. Yeah. So did you get to see your parents much while they were work, both working? Oh, during the day. Well, I was at or... school usually. I was at school at night, yeah. But most of the times at night, I would. To be honest with you, we were pretty poor. And you know, like I said, most of the time my parents, my mother get home. She's tired. My old man get home, he's tired. And it wasn't like I got a chance to sit down and talk with them. It was nothing like that. On weekends, that was when we mostly got a chance to interact with mom and dad. Because my dad was pretty religious. That was when they make you go to church. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you had to go to church on Sunday. Jeez. Was that a full day thing? Uh, About three hours for me. But all the kids were out there, all the people I know, we we mostly belonged to the same church because the church we belonged to St. Paul was started by slaves. Uh, they have graves out there, 1850. People were buried out there, the slaves. But it was a church that was started by a former slave. And my father, his people started that church and they passed it down. He was a head deacon out there. So, oh, wow. Yeah. By then they baptized. I was. They didn't have those pools. I was baptized in the swamp. Oh, gosh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> My gosh. You know, you know what a swamp is. Yeah. Right? Yeah. But that's that was the pool. But uh, 
it was an old, old church. It's still hanging on even now. That's where all my folks are buried. That's where everybody, you go and you look, you'll find Lewis's from way back buried there. That's amazing. Yeah. But uh, my mother uh, realized that I didn't belong in Bonke. You know, I was getting in trouble. She always told me, because I always had this thing. I wanted to, you know, even though all this stuff was happening around me, I didn't bite. You know, you wasn't going to tell me I wasn't better than anybody else and stuff like that. I I, I knew that, you know, it wasn't for me. Uh, I did things, because I had to work, too. We had to bring in money. I, I worked in a white barbershop, which was torture for me. But I worked in there. I was I was shining shoes and listened to all the jokes. It was like I wasn't there. You know what I'm saying? Right. And uh, you know it was it was bad. But I had to work, and my mother had got me that job because uh, guys she worked for uh, they they knew that uh, mama you know all those kids they needed money, so I would cut their yard, rake their leaves and stuff like that, get extra money, which was good. Mm-hmm. But I still couldn't go into the front door because I remember my mother was in the kitchen and I was working at, in that yard. And it was lunch and my mother was making sandwiches for me. Mm-hmm. And I made the mistake of going through the front door. Oh, dear. <laughs> yeah, I never forget that. I was going through the front door and I just got jumped by uh, the father, um, the doctor. He made me uh, turn around, go out. I had to turn around and told me never come to the front door. So I turned around, went to the back, and my mom was kind of like, you know, she, you know, what could she say? But, uh, yeah, that was one of the reasons that she was telling me that I, I just needed to leave Bunky. When I finished school, I had to get out of there. And your mom, I, you know, I can just imagine how painful that must have been yeah. for her to have to listen to some man that she some, worked for that she worked for who wasn't yeah. your father then talked to somebody that she loved so much i mean you yeah. love your kids so much and that must have broken her yeah. heart and at the same time she had to be like you said the matriarch this tough yeah. lady that had to go look son that's the way it is don't go through the front door right. here's a sandwich i can't go and correct yeah. this man as much as i want to and like i say my mom was she was the center of my life because i just owe her so much so is my father my dad and i appreciate everything he did i mean everything but uh my mom was she was it but uh my sisters basically raised me in a sense uh, and I guess when I started getting a little older, like 16, they couldn't control me. I was like, I never listened to them, but they would just tell my mom and she, yeah, I was kind of afraid of her, you know, because I was running with some wrong people. I was running with some really bad people, you know, and uh, not for my mom, because most of those guys I was running with, they're in prison or they died. So my mom just wouldn't have it, you know, and she straightened me out. And like I say, that's when I started playing ball and and all that stuff. But she's always been the center of my life. She was such a good woman. She was always for the underdog, no matter what, and never complained, just like my old man. She loved my father. I mean, you know, she loved my father. And um, because my mom could have had a different life, because she wasn't poor. They had money. She was supposed to be going to, she's supposed to be a teacher. Because all her friends, all her friends, and I, I used to always wonder when I was going to school. All her teachers used to go, McKinley, you know, they called McKinley there. And McKinley, you better straighten out. I'm going to tell Ellie. That's my mother name. 
And come to find out, she was supposed to be going to teaching school with them, but don't cook me with them. That's why all her friends were teachers, you know. They went, but she decided to marry my own man. Wow. So she was pretty educated up yeah, to that point, yeah, too. Yeah. And did she continue to educate herself? Did she ever no, say she that she No, she continued to make sure her kids were educated. She was. Yeah, my mom was an educated lady. But she was one of those people who believed in uh, heavily in God. Everything was based on, you know, her belief in God, that things are going to be better, that God will make it better. And, uh, yeah, she was, my mom was a totally educated woman. And she raised us to respect other people. But she didn't want people disrespecting her kids. She loved her children, you know. She loved them very much. Yeah. And like I say, when I left home, I was so, because, you know, to go from Bunky to boot camp in San Francisco, when you've never left Louisiana, and to join a, a service where 99% of everybody is white, because the Coast Guard was the last bastion of whiteness uh, in the military, because the Navy, Air Force, Marine Corps, and also the Army had been integrated. But the Coast Guard didn't start being integrated until late 60s, 70s. And the only reason they did was because at the presidential inauguration of John F. Kennedy, when all the uh, academies marched by, the Coast Guard Academy marched by the president, and John F. Kennedy noticed there were no women or uh, people of color at the Coast Guard Academy. He turned to the commandant and, where are your women? Where are your people of color? <laughs> and that's when they opened it up. Wow. And most of the places I went, I was the only black guy, Afro-American. That was the other thing I had to deal with, you know. Because it's funny, you come from a bunker where you fought whites all your life, and then you join the military service where it's nothing but white, and you're going to boot camp. You know, when I got to Alameda at boot camp, I'm sure you know what boot camp is, right? I think they call it basic combat training now, BCT. Uh, whatever, it's boot camp. It was bad. <laughs> was 16 weeks, four months, and I get there, I'm the only black guy, and I'm in a company of about 60 white guys and me, and they need to pick a PL, a platoon leader. And guess who they picked? <laughs> really? Yes. What What was the what criteria happened? upon that that they decided to the choose you? The criteria for now, the, the DL, the chief who ran the company, the boot camp guy to do all the screaming and hollering. <laughs> you know, he's looking at all us lying there. He see me. I'm six foot three, and he, the criteria was this. He like I run this company. I blah 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 blah. And he looks and he sees me and I'm standing up there and he says, you, Lewis, come up here. I didn't know what he was doing. I came up. He goes, can you be a son of a bitch? I was like, uh, yes, sir. He goes, can you be a motherfucker? Excuse my language. And I go, That's yes, sir. And he goes, this guy is running the company. And I was like a little shocked. You got 59 white guys from all over the country. Because that oh, was doing now. Oh, my God. All from the south, from the north, from the east and west. So he picked me to run the company. And he picked three other guys to help me out. But they were like MAA. They were treasurer and this and that. But, yeah, I, I was. Uh, and were was you like, everything that he asked you to be? Even more. I, I was, I, I was like, to be honest with you, I'm not just. But. At first, because they had guys from the South there, guys from Mississippi, even guys from Louisiana there. Mm -hmm. Then a lot of people were trying to dodge Vietnam by joining the Coast Guard. And they thought that if they joined the Coast Guard, that they didn't have to worry about them. But uh, they were from all over. 
But as soon as he jumped in, you know, Krause was his name. And he was from Brooklyn, New York. And uh, it was it was something. I can imagine that, you know, you go into boot camp and the whole point of boot camp is to make you so miserable that you break and eventually build yeah. up that camaraderie, yeah. build up yeah. that team experience with one another. But I can imagine that he probably said, you know what, there's one black guy here I'm going to turn him into this big giant son of a bitch and he's going to be these guys worst nightmare at that time. Yeah. You know, so that probably did make it like really tough. Did you end up becoming friends with a lot of them eventually? (laughs) Yeah, I was, I I was, uh, yeah, yeah. I had my own little crew. I'm not stupid. I was from the streets. I, I had my own little crew and, uh, because being a PL, I had perks there, things I didn't have to do in boot camp. I didn't have to go to KP. I didn't have to carry a rifle. Uh, I still had to, you know, go through the grinder. But I had my own little perks, and I had my own little crew. And they kept, you know, which was about four other white guys who worked with me, and they told me what was happening about guys who wanted to kick my ass and would call me. Yeah. Like that. Oh, my God. So we kind of, you know, I kind of got that and I got the respect of most of the company because uh, I was a drum major in the band and we had certain cadence. You know how you're marching and you're singing and you're doing certain things? Yeah. Uh, Every day before we went to chow, they had drill leaders, drill sergeants up on the corner and you had to do something when you're marching by them, going to chow, that impressed them, you know, while you're marching. And if you didn't, they would make you turn around, go back until you did something they liked. And then they would let you go and eat. And when you got 60 guys marching in Catons, I mean, you teach, they're teaching you discipline and also how to march. So I had a thing that we did in the band at Carver High School that everybody loved. And I taught it to the company. And here are these drill sergeants, along with my drill sergeant, Krause. He didn't even know because we had practiced it. And they're standing up there and Krause standing up there along with those other drill sergeants. And they were always looking at me, these drill sergeants, because one guy tried to push me around. He tried to push his finger through my chest because he didn't think I should be a platoon leader. Krause got on his ass. But anyway, they were standing up there and we were marching and, and I called out this cadence and we did it. It was so beautiful. And they did it. And I, I was looking at these drill sergeants and I was looking at Kraus. He had this big smile on his face. And these guys <laughs> they had never seen anything like that before. And they were like, oh, shit. And it was so good that we passed them. Stop that company. That's what the guy said. He goes, stop that company. We stopped. <laughs> boom. And he goes, get back here. You know, turned the company around, went back. And he goes, I want to see that again. <laughs> that was so funny. He goes, I want to see that again. Do that again, you know. That's so and cool. We, but yeah, and I told them that, oh, Krause, you, you did the right thing, you know. So it was cool. Although when we got So right, you made a name for yourself. Yeah, I made a name for myself. But even though when we graduated from boot camp, that was guys like, yeah, I'll be waiting outside the gate for you, you know, that kind of shit. Yeah. But they were full of crap. They wasn't waiting for nobody. But like I say, I was product of the street. I mean, I knew how to fight, you know. That was boot camp. Coast like they camp. say, whatever doesn't kill you makes you stronger, doesn't yeah, it? it makes but you not the best way to, to, to learn those things. But yeah. I mean, it comes in handy. I know that, you know, we all go through our various hard knocks. They're not exactly the same, but life's full of them. And yeah. sometimes 
you're not thankful for having been in a place where you had to learn that. But yeah. at the same time, you're like, thank God I know how to do yeah. this. It's called survival. Yeah. 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 Thank survival God I know mind. how to survive. Yeah. And then atmosphere. So it was, that was part of my breaking uh, monkey. Did you take a bus over from Bunky? Uh, yeah, yeah I, had, I had never uh, rode on a plane before. I took a bus to Alexandria and flew from Alexandria to San Francisco. That was my first time on a plane. Now, I had relatives, and uh, my uncle, uncles and cousins lived in Oakland. They had moved from Bunky. That was my uh, mother's brother's. So, so did you see your your uncle and your cousins? While oh you yeah, they were so happy. I went over there. I, I got liberty on the weekend, and because I was really close to my aunt, he loved my mother, but I was really close to him. And on the weekend, I I was in uniform. I went over to his house, and he was, ah, uh, he was so happy. He, wow. Yeah. It was great to see him, all my cousins. Matter of fact, I'm still. He going. must have been so proud to see you in that uniform. Yeah, too. he was. He was, and. uh I used to go on weekends and stay with him until I left, got out of boot camp. It was great to see him because he was pretty close to my mother. They were really tight. Wow. So how long had it been since you'd since seen, seen him? Since I, was a, yeah. since I was about seven or eight years old. Oh, my gosh. Okay. So I like at least man. a good 10 years, yeah. 10, uh, 11 no, years? More than that, uh, about, about 13 years. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. I hadn't seen them. We had all grown up. And also his children, who I used to play, because he used to come to Louisiana to see his father and grandmother. Uh, and his kids, who were the same age as me, they were growing up too. And uh, we connected. We still connect now. Uh, they're my cousins. They're my first cousins. Oh, that's yeah. so wonderful. So I had somebody there, and uh, it was great to see them. And every t- chance I got it. You know, having that kind of a, like a family lifeline connection where you're going rather than just getting sent somewhere where there's yeah. nobody there for you must have just made a huge difference. And what a huge break of luck, really, to um, to be the PL, to be chosen to be the PL. I mean, your your time there in boot camp could yeah, have been pretty miserable. Pretty miserable. Sure. You got just a frontline yep. pass. There you go. Yeah, I've always, like I say, Kraus saw something in me. And by the time I got out, he was one of my greatest friends. He was so happy, you know, for me. But he's from Brooklyn, and I used to talk to him. And he was raised in this integrated atmosphere in Brooklyn, New York. He had nothing against black people. I mean, he joined the Coast Guard, and he was, you know, he stayed in. He was a chief. He was cool. And like I said, any trouble I got in, there was Kraus. Ready to get me out. <laughs> That's yeah. a good friend indeed. So it was cool. And when I got a boot camp, he asked me where I wanted to go. Where do you want to go? I was like, mm, Florida, Miami Beach. That was a big mistake. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. Yeah, why? <laughs> because in the 70s and 60s, Florida and Miami Beach was a, just as bad as Louisiana. Okay. Oh, no. Liberty City. That was the only place we had to hang out ghetto, bad ghetto, but they discriminated just as much. But I wasn't there too long. They needed someone to go to Puerto Rico. They needed someone to go over there. And I volunteered to, to get out of the country. And that was the beginning of my career. Wow. Yeah, yeah that's where I met Alita. That's where I had me. Puerto Rico was the beginning. You know, I went over to Puerto Rico and got stationed at the small Coast Guard station there in uh, San Juan. San Juan, Puerto Rico. That's why I met John's mother. She was a Canadian girl traveling around the world with her friend. And we met 
I was at a club. She worked in a bank. Her friend sung in this club. And there was a fight. And here she was run behind me. That's how I met her. There was a fight in there. Like, <laughs> oh, my god! She runs behind me. And I was like, okay, get behind me. So I met her and invited her to the base. Little did I know that Puerto Rico, because Puerto Rico was so beautiful. They had all kinds of colors in Puerto Rico. Puerto Rico is not Louisiana. It's not Florida. It's beautiful. You have to worry about your color there. But on the base, it was a little bit different. Remember, no blacks in the base, mostly white. And I invented her to the base. And shit, and man, that wasn't cool at all. Oh, really? Yeah. Don't make it a different that this is Puerto Rico. Don't make it a different that she's from Canada. All they see is a white girl with a black guy. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they couldn't stand that. And uh, what happened is that uh, on the base, there was this guy. God, he just couldn't stand it, you know? And uh, we were in the galley eating one day. This is after Alita had gone, but he could see that I was going. And uh, there was a Coke machine, and I got a Coke. And when I turned around, wham, somebody hit me, mm-hmm. cold cocked me. And that was him. Uh. That was him. He cold cocked me. It's a true story. Cold cocked me. I didn't fall. And I just went at him because I'm not going to let anybody hit me like that. Right. And the chiefs came out there. People, you know, this is a military base, came out there and my lip had swollen up. And they asked what happened. And no, they ain't going to do nothing. I told, I told the guy. I told the chiefs, I go, you can put me in a brig, you can do whatever you want, but this is not over. This is not over. No way is this over, you know, which it wasn't. They took me and this guy to the captain of the base. He asked me what had happened. I told him, and I go, captain, it's not over. I don't care what you do to me. It's not over. Because my lip by this time, it's swollen up, I'm bleeding. And the captain's... Especially with this guy with this big smile on his face. But anyway, the captain just said, okay, Lewis, Friday, I think it was a Tuesday, he goes, Friday, I'm going to go pick up some gloves. And basically, you and this guy, he says, I'm going to let you guys fight until one of you say stop. And I go, that's fine with me. And the other guy was like, yeah, it's fine with me. You know, because I knew I could kick it, but anyway. Mm-mm. So come Friday, everybody at the base knew about this fight. It was like big time, you know. And I was, my, my hero was Muhammad Ali, mm-hmm. to be honest with you. I loved him. And the two Puerto Rican guys that was on base, they were working me out. Every evening I would go down in this little hole and they would work me out, you know. We would box. That's what we would do. Fly like and, a butterfly, uh, sting like a bee. Yeah, that was Ali. Yeah, and because the, the guy was kind of big, but uh, I knew I could beat him. And come Friday, everybody on the base, they made a big round, and we'd put on the gloves. The captain said, okay, go at it. And this guy, you could beat him. He he thought that, that just because he was big, all he'd do was hit me, and he didn't lay a glove on me. And I was, like, all over the place. I puffed up his face. I was just jabbing, and for a while there, I was like, I don't know. I feel sorry for this guy. And my Puerto Rican friends were like, come on, come on, Walter. Come on. In this, which I did. I hit him in the stomach. He went down. Then I threw a perfect right. He went down like a rock. Boom. Wow. And that was it. The captain came to me. He goes, it's over now, Louis? I go, yeah, it's over. It's done. And his boys were all around him with this shocked look on their face. He's down. They wake him up. 
he starts crying. And I look at this pitiful white boy crying. And I thought about my mother. I thought, would she be proud of me for doing this? And I was like, no, no, she wouldn't. She wouldn't. Mm-hmm. And I reached down and helped him up. Yeah. Wow. Sometimes you got to earn respect like that, don't you? Well, yeah. I mean, and I think that it just speaks so much to the difference, this passage of time that we've gone through. And I know racism is still a thing. I know. But it just had so much of a bigger impact back then yeah. that. Black Americans often found themselves having to fight for respect and sometimes in very unfair fights. So it's amazing that, you know, that wouldn't be my preferred method. You know, I, I'm sure no. a lot of people no, would but be. I don't believe, please no, I don't believe in violence. Right. I know, uh, even though I will want a man. But you were, you were so yeah. hurt. You were assaulted. You were betrayed in your, of your sense of safety in a place where you That's should right. have been safe. You were mistreated by somebody who should have been one of your comrades And so it's understandable that level of frustration, that level of anger, that level of animosity that you get. And I'm really glad, you know, that your captain saw that, that everybody else saw that. It's really funny. He was, he was white and he was from South Carolina. (laughs) I was really Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, sometimes you're raised in a particular environment and it does not affect you. And um, and I think that that yeah. happens. You know, and then, of course, sometimes you're raised in it and it really does affect you. So, yeah, yeah I think that it's yeah. just, you know, that contrast. And I'm glad that your mom was such a strong figure in your life and had instilled so many good values in you that you were able to just go, yeah. yeah. you know what, I'm going to give this guy yeah, my hand now and let him know that it's really over. Yeah, yeah, because I felt... And revenge, I, I, I didn't feel revenge. I felt like I had did something I shouldn't do, mm-hmm. shouldn't have done. I beat up this guy. I mean, I wanted to make him look bad, and I did. But I didn't feel any satisfaction. My friends did. My two friends <laughs> did, jumping up and down, going all crazy. <laughs> they probably like, thought you were the next Muhammad Ali. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They were like, what's wrong? What's wrong? And I told them, and they were like, screw him, F him, F him. And I talked to my mom about it too. I called her and she was like, well, you did the right thing, you know. But uh, I detest violence in any form. And here I was, but but it was something I had to do. Right. I told Alita when she saw me. Oh, was she there? No, she wasn't on base at the time. But when I got hit and my face was swollen up, I saw her that evening and she was like what what happened and it's so funny that a person of her color she was white she had no conception of what racism is she couldn't understand why when we were together and we were on base and people were looking i would get all like pissed or something she's like you don't even know those people so forget it you know right they're not doing anything but looking but she had no conception of racism really she didn't she had no conception, which kind of ticked me off in a way, you know. But she couldn't understand why I was getting mad. She yeah, was yeah. from Can. She was from Canada, right? Yeah, right. Yeah, because remember, a lot of slaves, a lot of slaves, escaped up there mm-hmm. in Canada. Uh, but I used to get a little ticked. At I used to try to explain to her. Uh, she got pregnant with Diana, 
that's when we got married because a friend wanted her to go back to Canada and have the baby. And I was like, wait a minute, it's my baby too. Right. She had to make a choice whether to stay or go back to Canada with her friend. And she stayed. And that was the beginning of my family, wow. John and Diana. So you got married in Puerto Rico? Got married in Puerto Rico. I was just a seaman. I wasn't making much money. She was working the bank. We had to find a place to stay in Santorsi. And the Puerto Rican families, that they just so great. They kind of like adopted me because I was on a boat that went out to these islands, St. John, St. Croix, all these islands work. The Coast Guard were doing. But when I was out, their family used to watch Alphalita and the baby. They were so, so beautiful, so great to me. Wow. Yeah, they became part of my family because uh, one of them lady was like, look, you know, I know you can't afford an apartment, but I got this house in the back and it's really nice and you and your wife can stay there which we did how generous yeah they were so great and that's where i you know i went from puerto rico to the course school hospital course school but uh yeah puerto rico i always be honored uh, for those people who really were so nice to me and took care of me Mm -hmm. me just really watching out for you yeah yeah i was lucky on that yeah. But yeah, she got pregnant and I, it was my responsibility. I, you know, I didn't want her leaving. In fact, when she didn't leave, we got married the next week. <laughs> you wanted to make sure she was going to stay. <laughs> yeah, because that way she can get all the benefits too. Right. Of being a dependent. That's yeah, true. My military benefits. Diana was born in a military hospital. When I got out of hospital course school, I got into helicopters, you know, search and rescue and all mm-hmm. that stuff. That was in Oregon. And uh, I had told Alita that I didn't want Diana to be by herself, so I wanted to have a son. I was like, you know, I wanted to have, I want to have a son, really, just like that. And so happened she has John. So, (laughs) you know, because I didn't want Diana to be alone. It just seems like you've had so many strokes of luck throughout your life, right? Like you got to get into the Coast Guard like you wanted, and you get into the Coast Guard, and you become the platoon leader and you get from platoon leader to going over to uh, Puerto Rico eventually and meeting yeah. Alita and, and then you want a son and you get yeah. a son. I, that's really, that's really awesome. That's, yeah. that's just beautiful. And I got a career at the hospital course school from Puerto Rico. I got into it, even though the guy I worked for the chief didn't want me going, he didn't think I was smart enough to go to hospital course school, but uh, I did guys helped me too. Guys who were hired in him helped me. So I got my school. And uh, yeah. That's so awesome. So when you were in Puerto Rico, you were not flying helicopters at that time. What were no, you doing? I just got in. I was a seaman then. Oh, okay. I was looking to see what career I was going in. Yeah. I was a seaman then. They put me on a, a buoy t- a, a ship. It's called a buoy tender. You don't want to ever be on a buoy tender because they work from sun up to sundown. Doing the buoys. You know the buoys out in the harbor? Yeah. Uh, the Coast Guard's responsible for them, taking care of them and everything. We had to do the buoys in Puerto Rico. Then we had to do the buoys in St. Thomas and St. Croix, Harbor there. We went to St. John Islands and stuff like that. We did a lot of work in St. Thomas and St. Croix. So with those buoys, are they just there to... Tell the ships, to tell about shallow water or right. anything. Okay. Tell the ships... To mark the channel, mm-hmm. tell the ships what channel they're supposed to be in. You need those. The Coast Guard is responsible for uh, law enforcement. Uh, also, they're responsible for aids to navigation, it's called. 
they're responsible for all aids navigation. Even when you're out in the middle of the ocean, you hear those bell buoys. The mm-hmm. Coast Guard is responsible for that. You would have to jump a buoy. They had those buoys out in the middle of the ocean. The ship would come, and you would jump on this buoy, and the ship would go, and you'd be on a buoy that's swinging in the middle of the ocean. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah, you would paint it because it had all that crap, bird crap on it. Yeah. You would have to paint it red or black. You're out there all day with that buoy swinging, smelling paint, and the ship is gone. In the hot sun. somewhere else. Yeah, and you're out there by yourself. And oh, my God. Sharks, and it's, it's something. You're just praying that the hero can come back. Did you ever see any very odd, crazy things out there in the middle of the ocean when you were out there by yourself? A lot of times you see uh, dolphins. Uh-huh. Swimming around the buoy, jumping up, putting on the show. <laughs> you know, schools of dolphins, because that's where you are. Or every once in a while, you might see a shark, great white, swimming around. Oh, the my God. That must have been scary, because there's not a lot of space on those buoys, right? Yeah, not a lot, but you're in a cage. It's not a lot, but you see great white, sometimes more than one. But you're out there all day, maybe for about five, six hours. On one buoy? On one buoy. Oh my gosh. There's got to be a better way, right? It takes about an hour to finish it. So you're out there for about five hours. Because the ship just can't come and pick you up. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But you're out there about five, six hours. And you have a box lunch. That's about it. (laughs) And a lot of time to think. Yeah, yeah. And get seasick. You only do that. The chief only put a guy out there. The chief that I worked for, he hated black people. That's who you put out there, somebody who you don't like, you know. Oh. So that was me. Yeah. Yeah. But that was cool. So how long did you do that for? We were there for about a year and a half before I got my orders for Costco. Oh, that's so exciting. Uh, I had to go to Costco in Great Lakes, Great Lakes, Illinois. But what happened is that when I went to Great Lakes, uh, Diana and Alita went to stay with her mother in Fort Saskatchewan because I couldn't afford to have them in Great Lakes and going to school there too. So they went to Fort Saskatchewan and lived with her mother until I got out of school because once I got out of basic school, I had to go to the Coast Guard Academy Hospital for my internship. Because the Coast Guard don't have doctors, they have us, Corman, like PAs. We have our own sick bay, our own stuff, but we get our ladder training from the Coast Guard Academy Hospital. I had to go there for almost a year, New London, Connecticut. General medicine, you know, you work in surgery, you work in emergency room, you work on the wards, you work in- So you learn it all. Yeah, you learn it all. Coast Guard way. You're the sole medical yeah. person, right? Yeah. No, the Coast Guard me? way. You saw my sick man. The Coast Guard way. And after that, uh, they send you out in the field after you graduate from there. The higher up in your class, the better assignment you're going to get. Like, I wanted to go to Washington because uh, Alita was in Canada, so it wouldn't be far. Mm-hmm. But they couldn't give me Washington. They, they said, hey, we have Astoria. That's the closest we give you in Washington. Because I was one of the better students. So I got Astoria. So you totally proved yeah. everybody that didn't believe yeah. in you wrong. Yeah, because when I was yeah, walking was off the awesome. ship, that chief told me that you're, you're not going to get to the school. You're not smart enough. But, you know, he was probably projecting because he probably didn't have the ability to do what you did. He probably uh, wouldn't have made it through That's the That's the truth, because he was like a dead. Yeah, he was a strong back, weak mind. You're right. He did. And I retired a higher rank than he did. Jesus. That's yeah. Great. Yeah, but, yeah, that's really awesome. Yeah, but yeah, and I went to school, and my first assignment was Astoria, and that was really scary because Astoria is a really, at the air station there, a lot of SARS, search and rescue, especially rescues there, is really rough because of Columbia River. It empties into the Pacific, mm-hmm. and the waters there are really rough. We we made a lot of rough SARS, and I remember my first first rescue was 
rough, 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 rough. You know, two guys, you know, it was bad. These two guys were on a cliff, and one guy slipped and fell, and he dragged the other guy with him oh, down gosh. the cliff. And what they do, they landed on a beach that was really isolated. Good thing somebody saw him because they called us. One of the guys had a compound fracture of his leg, and the other guy had a broken arm, and they were laying on this beach. And when we went out in the helo, we had to be very careful. You know, we couldn't go hover over them to pick them up because of the cliff. The rollers would have hit the cliff. So what happened is that I had to go into the water, and it was rough. You know, the waves were smashing in and all the place. It was pretty rough. I had to go into the water and with my pack, my med pack, swim to the beach. We had those air splints, treat these guys, put them on my back, swim out to the helo where they had lowered the basket and put them in there. And I had to swim back to the beach, do this surf. And uh, the guy with the broken leg, the first time I put him on my back, we were in the water and a big wave came and hit me. Oh, no. Bam, and knocked me back oh. with him on my back. And... Uh, I told him to get up, and he's like, no, 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 because he was scared, afraid. Yeah. I can't make it. I was like, we can do this. We can do this. Come on. You know? He's like, no, no, no. I took the guy with the broken arm, put him on my back, took him out, put him in the basket, took him up. I went back to get this guy, and I was like, you coming? Are you going to stay here? Because once the tide come in, you're going to drown. Don't you know that? <laughs> okay. Wow. Got him on my back, tied him down, and... uh Got him in there. That was my first rescue. It was so funny. We got to the air station. The news were there. That story is a small town, but the news were mm-hmm. there. The TV stations were there. And got them, unload them, and they talked to me. And That night I was on TV. I was kind of like <laughs> impressed. Wow. Everybody had 50 minutes of uh, fame. I just think your, your whole entire story, I mean, up to here is just amazing. And I know that it just kept getting even more amazing. Like somebody coming yeah. from Bunky. Louisiana, where yeah. everybody has just con- completely thought that, you know, just written you off. And look at all the stuff right. that you've done. This is, I love this. Yeah, I know. It's amazing. I know. It's like you go back, I go back there and I don't want to say things, but, you know, I got my wings and everything and all that stuff. Yeah. But they love me. I, I got, they put in a magazine and uh, at our uh, high school reunion, they honored all the military a lot of guys died in Vietnam. A lot of guys I knew, mm-hmm. and a lot of guys in there. And I never knew my family felt that way. They had my picture, my uniform. I I got it here, and beside it, it has H E R O. Wow! And the things they said about me, I never knew that they felt that way. You know, I know how my nieces and nephews mm-hmm. felt, but I never knew how my brothers and sisters felt. Although my sister had a big picture of me in her front room. Uh, I just never knew that's how they felt. I think all of us who have somebody in our family who's in the military is incredibly proud, you know, of the things that that person has done, whether you've talked to them in recent times or it's been a long time, just the fact that somebody has gone through the process, because I think everybody knows boot camp is called boot camp for a reason. It's got a reputation as kind of a, you know, really hard survivalist, extreme type yeah. of experience. And then to actually make it through something like that 
and go to school and become a medic, become a doctor, um, or, you know, learn how to fly a helicopter. I mean, all of those things, it's impactful in a very positive way for families. Yeah. You know, and like I said, it, it's it's great to know that that's how I feel about it. Yeah. I, I don't talk about it a lot. They, they ask questions, but I just don't talk about a lot of things, and uh, especially Nam, I don't talk about that a lot, which I do now, but because my brother, even before I was going over there, my brother said, like, you got to be careful, you know, you you got to be careful, because I know you, because I was always crazy as a kid, like, <laughs> I know you're going to do something crazy. <laughs> I was uh, stationed in Guam, I went from Long Beach to Guam, they had to have a hospital coming there to Guam, a small little base there, and what happened was that the Navy requested uh, a Coast Guard unit over in Cameron Day and Bung Tao because what had happened is that they were bombing the Ho Chi Minh Trail because supplies were coming in on the Ho Chi Minh Trail from the north. And the only way that uh, BC was getting in uh, supplies was by water with junks. They were slipping in supplies. So the Coast Guard is used to boarding, you know, search and rescue. That's what the Coast Guard do, you know. Right. Uh, they were used to boarding, looking for drugs and stuff like that. So the Navy needed someone. So they took our unit and moved us to Vontown, home ported there. Last place I thought. I, we went to went to PI, filed training, Philippines, along mm-hmm. the From there, uh, went to home station in Vontown. And while they were doing boarding, I cooked up with the uh, Rangers and the Marines. I would go into the village. They had a program called MedCamp program where in the daytime we would go into the villages, set up, and I would treat the villages, people who had never seen a doctor before in their life. Wow. You know, it's just I would treat them. But you could only be in there at daytime because at night the VC would move in. Mm-hmm. We would be there and before the sun went down, we'd leave. And I would leave a lot of medical supplies there for the people, but VC would take it at night. And I used to take candy and uh, vitamins and a lot of stuff to the kids because it was a lot of malnutrition and pneumonia. But that's what I did. Yeah. Wow. It was part of a MedCap program, they call it. Yeah. We give BC take. Didn't do any good because they would take come at night and take over those villages. Bong Tao, Chulai, uh, all the villages. You know, it was it was something. I lost two guys. We were going to one of the villages and uh, one of the friends of mine, guy who had been partnered with at R- on RR in Thailand, Bangkok. We were in Thailand for a week, R&R. Uh, he got hit in the chest with uh, AK-47. I couldn't do anything. It almost freaked me out totally. We had only been there for about a month. Oh, my God. He got hit in the chest. And uh, I was holding his hand when he died. Uh, his name was John Outlaw. And uh, I couldn't do anything. And it freaked me out totally. I'm sorry. Uh, because I blamed myself. We were just we were in a bush. We were going to the village. Yeah, a sniper hit him. I couldn't do anything about it uh, because hole was as big as my fist, you know, straight through his chest, mm. straight through his heart. That was all gone, and he died. I was holding his hand, and he died. And uh, I got back to my sick bay. I locked the door, and I was crying, crying. And nobody could come in. They were docked. And I called Doc, mm-hmm. opened the door. You know, I didn't because I blamed myself. And 
what happened is that I was in Cameron Bay and I was in the hospital and they had to get one of the doctors from the hospital to come down and talk to me. He just pulled me aside and he was like, look, you've been over here a week. He goes, these guys depend on you. You know, tell me right now, are you going to be able to do this job? Are you going to be able to take care of these guys? Because if you're not, I have you back on a plane tomorrow, back going to the States. Tell me what you can do. Because you got to stop. You got guys to take care of. He goes, it's not your fault. There's nothing you could do. And he goes, can you hound this job, Lewis? Can you? And I was like, yeah, yeah. Kind of straightened me out a little bit. Because I didn't want to go back. You know, I didn't want to. Wow. And then we lost another guy with an IED. He stepped on it and blew it apart. Uh. But, uh, yeah, I had only been over there a week. I don't know what he expected. I am so sorry that happened. Yeah, it was, uh, I had to draw my gun. I, I wore a forty-five. See, uh, medical people are not supposed to. We're supposed to be non-combatant, but uh, VC, the Vietnam Charlie, they didn't take black guys prisoner. They hated us for once for fighting. They could not understand why, because they knew what was going on in the states in the seven. They knew exactly what was going on. Why we were over there fighting, fighting them when. Our people were getting lynched and discriminated against back in the States. That's why you didn't, when I first got over there, that was one of the first thing one of those brothers, because we all stu- stuck together where we took care of each other. Mm-hmm. Brother told me, you know, don't be taken, you know, because they tortured. What a dangerous time. Yeah, every day. Yeah, it's pretty dangerous. But you could make a lot of money where everybody had a hustle, you know, selling drugs and selling copper, selling money. Even as a corpsman, I could make all kinds of money selling tuberculosis syringes because the guys use that for heroin, shoot up. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, that was the thing, right? A lot of our servicemen came back being addicted to drugs, being addicted to heroin. Yeah, and they got them from the Vietnamese, yeah, from most of our events. That was hell, man, yeah. And that was a year that you were there? Yeah. But after that, they gave me wherever I wanted. And uh, I went to Monterey. Alita wanted to go to Monterey. I went to Monterey. Yeah, Monterey it's beautiful County. there. It's like, oh, yeah. Got stationed there. And uh, I was making rink along the way. Once I made chief there, uh, you know. And they didn't have a lot of SAR search and rescue. Every once in a while, they had somebody in their boat. I remember one of the SARS reports, there was one of the yachts going in a circle. So we went out, uh, and they dropped me on the boat, looked down in the Burton area. That was this guy laying down on the stairs, and he was twisted. And I knew it had happened. He had fell. And it's pretty obvious his neck was broken. And uh, it was just him. And uh, <laughs> I was like, good thing I knew how to stop a boat. You know? Right. <laughs> how shocking, right? Yeah, shocking. Did it? Did it ever get easier after all of those search and rescues? Because I'm sure you came upon fatalities. Yeah, lots of fatalities. Mm. Yeah, it never got easier. No, rescues, no. It's things that you never forget. But also the people that you rescue that you'll never see again, but they hug you, tell you how much they appreciate you. Because let's face it, you're putting your life online for people that you don't know. Mm -hmm. So you were... On the on the helicopter ones, you were the guy that went down the winch from yeah. the helicopter, right? Yeah, that was me. Yeah, 
And we used to do heart attack from cruise ships. I mean, we were going to do this rescue on a cruise ship because the guy had a heart attack. And we had to pull off because people were out there taking pictures, flash. All we saw was flashes. Oh, my God. From the ship, cruise yeah. ship. And the pilot had to pull off. We had to over the bullhorn to stop it, you know, because they couldn't see because the cruise ship was still moving. So it was us. It was a moving rescue. Wow. But uh, I bet that happens all the time these days. So yeah, I could imagine TV, that. Yeah. Um, it, do you yeah. know if there is a guidelines for cruise ships these days now that if it's a nighttime rescue that they tell the passengers? Well, I'm sure they are. I'm they're sure aware they are. of that. I'm sure they are, but I don't think that's a law. Mm-hmm. I mean, if the pilot says, hey, you know, you got to stop, you stop. Right. Exactly. What was the wildest rescue that you ever did? Wildest rescue I ever did was, it was in a storm. It was off the coast here. And these guys, there was like three people in a small boat. They should have never been out there. And it was bad. And I dropped down. I was put in the water. And the waves were all over the place. And uh, I almost got taken under by the swells. To believe it or not, out in the middle of the ocean, those swells are so strong. And uh, one of them was, a, I guess, a teenager. I got him first. And because he was with these other two, and that was this guy who was floundering. And when I got the teenager and put them in the basket, this adult grabbed me from behind and was taking me under. That's terrifying. You know, because he mm-hmm. was freaking out. I had to uh, actually uh, use my elbow to... Uh, Force him yeah, away. I, cracked, I didn't push him away. I cracked him with my elbow. He had a life jacket on, but because he took me under, and I, you know what happens when you swallow water. Yeah. 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 And I was trying to get this kid up, and uh, I got his wife in, and then him laughed. But that was one of the wildest rescues I did. Wow. In that thing off the coast of Oregon with the uh, those two guys. Yeah. Yeah. But... Uh, and I almost lost my legs on a fishing boat. They got a lot of fishing boats in that story. This one guy had a pump fall on his hand, and it literally just sliced his, on his right hand, his last two fingers were just hanging on. Mm. And we had to do a moving rescue. And what happened was the pilot was dropping me down. And just before I hit the deck, the boat pulled up. Oh, God. And I had my wetsuit on, and the screws in the back scratched my, almost cut my legs off, scratched my rescue. They hit the uh, wetsuit. If I would have been up a little bit, they would have took my legs off. Oh, my God. And that shook me up. That's for sure. Yeah. But I got the guy, and I cut his fingers off, the, you know, put in some ice. And uh, matter of fact, they got a chance to sew them back on. So you don't, yeah, you don't, if you get successful rescues, that's what you look at. But the wild ones and stuff like they are all wild, to be honest with you. Yeah. You know, I've lost, up in Alaska, I've lost guys, friends of mine, guys that were in school with me, friends of mine. I've lost them uh, from rescues, Barron Straits up in Alaska. That's the worst. Um, I don't know if you looked at the Endless Catch, mm-hmm. but the Coast Guard do a lot of rescues. The Barren Straits is the worst ocean that you can have, other than Drake's Passage. It's all ice moving through the water, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, right. Coasties die up there. Did you ever do any rescues in that area? Uh, they wanted me. I was on my Twilight Tour, which is down in San Diego, my last five years. 
they needed a chief up there, and they asked me if I wanted to go up there, and I told them, no way. <laughs> that was about three years ago. Good yeah. for you, you know. Yeah. Now, speaking of really cold places, you got to go to Antarctica, right? Yeah, three times. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Okay. Yeah, that's that's totally good. Only, oh, Antarctica, as you know, is the coldest place on Earth. Mm-hmm. And I was on an icebreaker, the uh, glacier. I was the cold, I was sick bay on the icebreaker. Had two other Coleman women, but I was the main doc there. And we take scientists to the Antarctic because the Antarctic is the only neutral site in the world. All people have signed treaties. Mostly all countries have stations there. Ours is called Parma Station, and we would take supplies to the scientists there, and we would basically uh, change the scientists there up there for a year or two. We would take them, uh, make a change, go across Drake's Passage, take them to uh, Punta Salinas in Chile, that's where they used to catch the plane, dump them there, get supplies, go back across to the ice. And we had to cross the roughest ocean in the world. It, look it up. It's called Drake's Passage, discovered by Sir mm-hmm. Francis Drake. It's where the Atlantic and the Pacific meet. It's rough for two days. All you do is you're in the rack. Uh, there's no hot food because you, the ship is rocking. The waves are up to uh, you're talking about 15, 20 foot waves, maybe higher than that. But Drake's Passage is two days, you're rocking and rolling, trying to get across there. And once you hit the ice, it's okay because it's smooth. But uh, it's a mess. Two days, and we're up in sick bay because guys are getting cut, guys are in the room getting burned. It's, it's a two days of hell for us. Yeah, this says here. Um... June 18th, 2015 is the last stats that they have. At that time, there were 20,000 sailors had lost their lives there. And its waters hold more than 800 shipwrecks. Yes, that's Drake Passage, all right. But good thing we were on the glacier. We were first ship to take women to the Antarctic, and she was on the uh, helm. You know what a helm is. That's there in the ship. Mm -hmm. She should have never been on there. And the ship took a big... 50-foot roll, and she let go, and she slammed into the iron bulkhead, broke just about every bone in her body. We had to turn around and go back to Wellington because uh, she she almost died, and we had to use the helicopter to fly her into Wellington because she was that bad. She was pretty tough, but, you know, it was bad, and uh, we got her back to Wellington. It's amazing. uh, yeah, but Drake's Passage, yeah. So you crossed that three times. Three times, yeah. I was only supposed to be on the ship two years, but I was in the twilight too. Like I say, I was going to retire. Then I wanted to retire in San Diego, and I always wanted to come down here to this air station. Mm-hmm. And they told me that because they want to decommission that ship. If I was to stay on there an extra year, they would give me San Diego. Oh. So it was worth it to me. Plus, look at all the ports you pull into. That's one of the reasons I want to be on an icebreaker. Look where we go. We pulled into Fiji, New Zealand, Australia, Tasmania, uh, South America, Hawaii. We take our training in Hawaii. That's south. When you go south, you stop there. We stop in Chile. It's a tour, a world tour. I love Fiji. We stop Fiji. And we have friends in New Zealand. When we pull into New Zealand and Australia, it's just so funny. They're used to seeing the glacier there around Christmas time. When we pull in Australia, they have all kinds of people waiting waiting there on the pier bus all kinds of people wow the welcome committee yeah 
and they invite us to their homes and for Christmas and everything. And uh, we pull into uh, Sydney. So if you want to see the world, get on an icebreaker. But you got to spend time up in the Antarctica. It's beautiful up there, but it's, like I said, it's the coldest place on Earth. Yeah. We used to play football on the ice. Because in the, in the Antarctic, there's no polar bears. It's only penguins and killer whales. When you break the ice, the killer whales will be following the ship for breaking the ice. And the penguins will be scattering. And the killer whales will just jump up on the ice and slide and get the penguins. It's like watching something on the National Geographic. But they would, killer whales would follow the ship. And we would stop, yeah, and uh, you could go down. But you had to worry about White House. When you hear the horn go off, uh, a White House is like when you see in the desert and you see a sandstone coming. Mm-hmm. But that's the way it was in Antarctica. The weather could change in a second. And you look and there's a White House. And you don't want to get caught in a White House because you would just freeze to death. Yeah, okay. So it's like a White blizzard. House. Is it a yeah, blizzard? Yeah, it's like a blizzard. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You see it moving. And they shot in the horn, run back to the ship. And then it would hit. You can't see anything in front of you. How long would they last? They would last for about, I don't know, about 30, 40 minutes. Is it just the wind picking up the snow like the wind does yeah, with the it's sand? it's the wind. And also the temperature is going to drop more. That's why you freeze it up. In the Antarctic, you got to remember, put your arm in the water and it went 30 seconds. Or your arm would freeze off, basically. And uh, we went to McMurdo, the Navy base that's in Antarctic, that was found by Admiral Byrd. And also, right there, they have a place that's frozen in time of the people, this guy from New Zealand who were trying to reach the South Pole. He didn't do it, but his his camp is frozen in time right there. Wow. These are these old-time explorers who were trying to reach the South Pole, but they died, and it's just frozen in time right there. It's like a museum. Was it... Sir Robert Scott? That's Scott. Yes. Yeah. Sir Robert Scott. You know, know? I I read a lot. And I remember reading about his expedition and it just broke my heart because they went out and they should have reached that South Pole, but But there was a huge storm that came through his party. It was probably a whiteout. And he wrote a letter knowing that he was going to die. He wrote a letter to his wife because he had a little boy. And in that letter, he penned to her, you know, please be practical. Do not mourn my death. I want you to get married again. I want you to marry a man who will be a good father to the child Um, And we'll teach him how to, you know, we'll teach him things that men need to know, you know, ride a bicycle, how to fish, how to do this, how to do that. And, you know, of course, I I love you and all of that, but I will not be returning. And And that he didn't. And that letter is, I believe it's in the Smithsonian. I it's been a while since I read it. Yeah. And his whole thing is just frozen in time, right? Is it really? Yeah, it's just right there. You can walk. It's just frozen. Yeah. Everything, how he left Scott. That's the guy. Yeah, yeah Sir it's, Robert it's something. Scott. It's part of history that I never thought I would see. But, uh, no. Right that yeah. is such such a tragedy. And I think that about three or four months later, I, I don't think it was more than six months later, I think it was America was the first to reach the South Pole. Yeah, along with an Afro-American uh, yeah. farmer. 
he was with, I was an Afro-American with this guy that reached the South Pole. Yeah. I got a chance to go there. I dropped there uh, with the Hilo. They had to take some supplies to the station. It's a pole and a South Pole. So I went there. I used to have a shirt. I bought a t-shirt and a towel. I don't know what happened to him. But we dropped off there. One of the pilots like, hey, Doc, you want to go? I go, yeah. And we went. I don't think a lot of people have the honor of saying that. So I, oh, I, I think that's really amazing. Um, what I came up with is George W. Gibbs Jr. served on Admiral Richard Byrd's third expedition to the South Pole in 1939 to 41, becoming the first African-American to reach the South okay. Pole. Yep. Is Gibbs? Gibbs, George W. Gibbs Jr. So we've been there too. <laughs> yeah, nineteen forty-one. Okay, that's that's awesome. There's a great picture here. I'll I'll put it in the show notes. McMurrow was discovered by Admiral Byrd. He was the one who put that base. Richard Byrd. Yeah, I don't know if his name is Richard, but he was one of them, and it's there. there. Yeah. Yep, Richard Byrd. Yeah, so it's there, and we take them supplies too, because you know it's ice. The ice is thick, and it's an icebreaker. We drop them off supply. And also, like I say, the scientists. It's interesting, the scientists we take up there, because uh, they tell us what they're doing. You know, they get grants from the government. but And also, the glacier is the U.S. presence, because you can't have nuclear ships in the Antarctic. That's part of the treaty. Right. No nukes in the Antarctic. And also, for the first time, this is true, we chart places. One day, they piped over this pipe system that we're in a place that's never been charted before. We charted a place that no one had ever been to before. Really? And they go, if you want to see this, come up, you know. That's amazing. We are now in an uncharted place. Yeah, how many people have ever been yeah. in uncharted territory? Yeah, I, I, I know. It's almost like every single place on this planet, at least every land-bound place, right, has been charted. Yeah. So been that... charted. As far as I'm concerned, so I was happy when they piped that. Wow. So I go up, everybody goes up. And it's just ice. That's all you see. Why? I mean, it's not like you see aliens or something. <laughs> you go up and you're like, oh, okay. All you see is ice. It's like, it's never been charged before. Yeah, you're charging it. So, okay. All right. Whatever. Amazing. But uh, I thought that was kind of neat. I mean, I'm a big Star Trek fan. The goal where no one has boldly go. Yeah, <laughs> go boldly. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> I'm a big Star Trek fan too. So I love that. Yeah. It was cool, but, uh, you know, it's just ice. And we up there, and, and it's really weird that you go outside 12 o'clock at night and the sun is beaming down on you because, remember, it's six months of daylight, mm-hmm. six months of darkness. You can't be up there darkness because the ship cannot break the ice down. They get stuck in the ice. And it messes around with your sleeping habit. I can imagine. So when you're when you're down there, are you not staying on the ship, you're, are you staying? Now we in the uh, camps. Yeah, well, you got you know you got your uh, cold weather clothes on and everything, with bonnie boots and stuff like that, and you can go with the scientists. They discovered uh, bones of an emperor penguin, which is an emperor penguin is big, you know, tall. Mm-hmm. They found that, but no, you don't have to. You could go with them, and also what they do is that they have a day. It's called Boxing Day, where the ship is up on the ice. They bring out the barbecue pits, bring out everything, 
and you can go on the ice. That's how we're playing football out there. They're having hamburgers and hot dogs. And also, it's a tradition. You can challenge anybody on the ship to box. Oh, oh, it's actually oh, a box. <laughs> yeah. I'm thinking gift boxes. <laughs> nah, it's called boxing. Day. It's a tradition you do in the ice every year. You can challenge anybody. They don't have to take you. So I couldn't believe one of the guys asked me, to, do I want to box you? Die. you know, like, get, the, get out of my face. Get the heck out of because here. I, yeah, because I had to be there to make sure nobody got killed. Right. But, uh, yeah, and we have boxings, and it's fun. Get hamburgers, hot dogs, play football. I was I threw five touchdown passes that day. Oh wow! It's in, it's nice. in my on the ice. You can see it, but it's great. It's a great day. So it's like a play day on the ice. And yeah, I, and I was like, only we could do stuff like that. Yeah, but uh, it's fun. It's just a fun day. And then you gotta remember, you have also when you're going to that all, you gotta cross the equator, and you gotta have the initiation also. You you go across the equator. You got to be initiated. They're called tadpoles, and you become yeah. Those those are not fun, right? They dump all the nah, yucky food yeah. and everything on you, and yeah. The first year I didn't go across. I wasn't going through. Everybody's supposed to go through. I was like, uh, <laughs> you're, you're not going to do that to me. That's for sure. But they give you a card that I still have. I went through it the second year, but yeah, they mess, mess they mess you up. But. uh that year we had the women on that. That was third year. They had about 25 women. Put feathers on them. Oh, really? Oh, gosh. Yeah. yeah, it was a mess. That'd be nice for you to go through, Sil. I mean, you, you would go through it. <laughs> I'm not crossing the equator with you ever. You'll throw <laughs> something <laughs> at me. <laughs> <laughs> no, nah, I, would, I wasn't too hard on guys. I just put some hot sauce and ketchup in the thing. And when they came through, I had them open their mouth and I would shoot it in their mouth. Oh, gosh. <laughs> Yuck. <laughs> but, so uh, does each person do something different? No, nah, you have people dress up as pirates because this started back in the pirate days. Uh-huh. The crew who's been through it are the ones who put people through it. They wake you up at 5 o'clock in the morning. Oh, God. <laughs> They put you back in the back, and they, they have set up all these things for you to go through. Yeah, it's 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 rough. Did you guys pause uh, somewhere along the equator? Yeah, in the middle of the ocean. Well, going across the equator, they used to stop and have swim call out in the middle of the ocean. That's why you got to be a, a strong swimmer. Yeah, because they have the they have the gunners made sitting up there with the rifle for the shark. But those uh, tide can take you away because out in the middle of the ocean, it's so strong. I jumped out there and I didn't realize how strong it was. Yeah, we paused for that. Also, we had basketball team on the ship. I coached the basketball team. Three days before we pulled into Fiji, we got a radio transmission from the American Embassy in Fiji saying, do we have a basketball team? And we were like, yeah, we got a team. And they were saying that the Fijian wanted to play us basketball. Oh I didn't gosh. realize how big that was going to be when we got to Fiji. The captain said, come down. Yeah, chief, they want to play ball. And yeah. So everything was ready. We pull into Fiji. And that night, they come and tell us the place that we're playing the game is in the national. It's like playing in Staples Center. Oh, them. my gosh. It's where the Olympic team play. What? We didn't know it that big. And they send limousines to pick us up. Oh, my gosh. That's so cool. And we're like, wait a minute. You know, and I'm beginning to think. This was a big thing to them. Fijians are small, okay? 
because I'm thinking we gonna kill these guys because that's just me. I play ball. I ball. You know. So we get in the limousines. We go to this nice gymnasium. We see all these people outside. We get out of the limousines. We we have our uniforms. We got glacier uniforms. These people are clapping like we're the Harlem Oh Bulldogs, my gosh! You know? And we go into the door to the gym. The place is packed. The mayor is there. The <laughs> governor is there. The captain is there. You know, the city council is there. It's packed with people. <laughs> and I'm thinking, like, well, who they think we are? You know, it's like. But as far as they're concerned, we're the Harlem Globetrotters because we're an American exactly. basketball team. And as you know, everybody in America yep. can play basketball. They watch the NBA, you know. So I'm thinking, man, well, we got to take these guys. We get out there. These Fijian, their team, small. They had no guys bigger than about 5'8". We had guys that were 6'4", you know. But what I didn't realize is that a Fijian could hit a cat's eye at 100 yards. So they didn't have to come in and get any rebounds because all their shoots from the outside, they never missed. Oh, my gosh. They were killing us. They were killing us. And the gym was going wild. And we came back a little bit, but they beat us. They beat us about 15 points. Wow. Really? They beat us. And I was totally pissed. You know, I was like, <laughs> and the mayor, and the, they caught I was took that. I didn't like to lose. I was pissed. And the guy shook our shook their hands, and we were a thing. Then they took us to reception. We had food. And they treated us like kings, you know? And uh, Catherine was like, he was all cool, you know? Well, you guys lost. No big deal. I'll go, yeah, it is a big deal. <laughs> if you're a ball player, it is a, it is a big yeah, deal. You yeah, guys got yeah, ambushed. Yeah, he can talk all he wants. Yeah, got ambushed by Fiji National Team. <laughs> what really ticked me off, the next day I was downtown Fiji, and all their papers are in English. I pick up the Fijian paper. This is their national paper. Uh-huh. And you know what the headlines was? <laughs> Fijian sink sailors. Oh, my God. And they had this big headlines, Fijian sink sailors. And they had the score there. And they had the whole thing written up. I couldn't believe it. Oh, I was shame. I took the paper. Yeah, I know. I took the paper and I took it back to the, to the, <laughs> to the ship. And everybody was like cracking up. Um, and I was like, okay, we're going to be here next year. That right, hurts. Try that. Yeah. But they did you get it. did you get to to rechallenge them? Yeah, the next year I was ready. I, I was. Uh, they still beat us, not as bad. <laughs> oh yeah, my gosh, they came back. But they beat us, but not. As I know bad. there's they there's some Coast Guard ship out there that's listening. That's going to be going to Fiji. You guys got to win one for the Americans. Yeah, I know. <laughs> But uh, it was fun, but they still beat it. But they, they were such beautiful people. That's why I, I wouldn't mind going back to Fiji. Uh, I love Fiji. I, I love the food, the people. That's the first place I went where everybody's black. Really? <laughs> I love it. Wow. Yeah, Fijians. They have this nice hair. They're all dark skinned. But everywhere we went, they did treat us. Because we we're in New Zealand, and they treat us like kings too. But they play softball, and I was shipped. Uh, play them softball. Well, they got killed by it. Oh no! But afterwards, <laughs> yeah, they don't. They're not big in soft. Get a soccer ball that they're killed. Yeah, but, rugby, uh, right? But they, yeah, yeah, rugby and soccer. I met some of those guys too. But anyway, uh, after the game, they had food and everything. They, you got to sing. All of them sung a song, and uh, after they got to singing, they were like, "Well, now you guys sing." You know, we were like, "Uh, what?" and the guys were all shy, and they're like, well, sing what? You know, 
and the New Zealanders go, well, we, we love your national anthem. Aren't you singing your national anthem? Oh. And that's what we sung the national anthem. And they just loved it. Oh. They loved the words in our national anthem. Wow. And I was like, oh, I didn't know that. They basically loved it. They go, yeah, they're beautiful words. You know, that generosity of spirit of having another country say, hey, you know what we want to hear is your anthem. Uh, yeah. yeah, that made us feel. I thought that was a little unusual. Yeah. New Zealand is so crazy about America. So you've been to so many places, and then you did end up in San Diego, right where you wanted to be, right? Yes, my twilight, too. Last five years, uh, I had been in 23, so uh, you can stay in 30, but after 28 years, I was like, oh, it's time to go. And plus, I had maxed out on my ring. Wow. You know, it's time to go. I was done after 28 years and all those things, and uh, yeah, it was quite an honor. Yeah. And like I say, if I could do it all over again. That's awesome. I just love that story. If you could go back and say something to that little boy from Bunky, what would you say? I would say basically to that little boy that I was, is like, stay strong, stay hopeful, and never, ever let anyone, no one, no human being ever tell you that you can't do something or you can't be someone. Never let anybody tell you that things are impossible for you because of who you are. You can do anything. You can be anything. That's what I'll tell them. I love that. Yeah. I think it's important to have these stories out there. You know, if somebody tells you that you cannot do something, that you're not smart enough, because it's all in you, right? Yeah, right. Check it out. When you know, we have a high school recovery, high school reunions, we have them every two years for our school to keep our school alive. Because once they integrated the schools back there, they closed Carver because they didn't want white people going to a school named Carver. So they built a whole new school, and now it's integrated. But we, Carver alumni, keep Carver alive. Every two years, we go back to Bunky, and for three days, it's party time. We honor Carver. We have a parade. It's a big thing. Wow. The first Super Bowl, uh, Lionel Ulrich from Carver played with the Green Bay Packers in the first wow. Super Bowl, Carver. Guys who went to the Carver. I wrote Carver's name, my family name, and Carver High School name in the ice in the Antarctic. I wrote it down there. I carried that banner. And it's so funny. When they were, two years ago, they honored all the people who joined the military. And they had people standing up like, we want to honor everyone here who's in the military. And they had the Army guys stand up, which just about everybody went in the Army. And then the uh, Air Force guys, everybody goes in the Air Force. They had a few Marines and a few Navy guys. And then they called Coast Guard, and I was sitting with my classmate. And you know how many guys stood up? One. <laughs> Me. Wow. I was like, wow. And it's so funny what some of the people said, especially my classmates who knew me. And they go, that's just like McKinley. You're always going to be different. <laughs> <laughs> Very so cool. I love that they, they know who you are. They knew your spirit. Yeah. Oh, that's him. That's who he is. That's awesome. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's me. That's me. But uh, <laughs> yeah, but we keep uh, Carver alive, uh, you know, that way because it's in us. But I owe a lot. And I owe a lot to my teachers too, who cared a lot about what we used to do. Because I know you used to tell me all the time, "Better stop screwing around, Kenley, because you're going out to a world that you know nothing about." And they were right. What a full and awe-inspiring life. Walter is a hero. 
I hope that this story has inspired you to believe in yourself and follow your dreams. As always, I'll post links in the show notes. Please continue to send me your questions and suggestions. I love hearing from you. And don't forget to take a moment to rate this episode. It only takes seconds, but your rating moves this podcast closer to the top of searches so that my friends and I can reach more people. I'm looking forward to sharing more in the Company of Friends talks with you. Be sure to follow me on the socials and the dot com all at the Queen Trail podcast. That's T-H-E-Q-U-A-I-N-T-R-E-L-L-E podcast. I am Syl Annan, the Queen Trail. And until next time, I wish you passion, grace, adventure, confidence, courage, peace, elegance, and beauty.